Well, very good morning to all of you. It is truly a joy and a privilege to be with you on this last Lord's Day of 2019, and it is in some ways hard to believe that 2019 is already coming to a conclusion. And I can think of no better or more appropriate way to end our year and really to begin a new year by thinking directly and explicitly on the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May he be the heartbeat of our lives. May he be the center of our souls. And may we as his people fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that is exactly what we will be seeking to do this morning, to fix our eyes on Jesus. So if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, it is our heart's prayer this morning. 
It is our heart's desire this morning that we, by the power of your spirit, would be able to peer into the dark cloud of glory which surrounds this passage. That you would peel away the veil of mystery in the garden of Gethsemane, that we might behold the majesty of our Savior. O Lord, by the power of your Spirit, will you not come and show us your glory, even just a glimpse of it, even as it were the backside of your glory? Lord, as we come to this precious, weighty passage, would you help us to remove the sandals from our feet, for we are standing on holy ground. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of the world, at the origin of humankind, there stood a garden. This was the most beautiful garden you could possibly imagine, full of rivers and trees and rocks and shrubs of the most exquisite kind, all perfectly sublime, all untainted in the most profound way. This garden was nourished by a mighty river, which turned into four rivers, and the animals in this garden dwelt in harmony with one another. This was a garden to the east called Eden. And in this garden, God placed man whom he had formed. Male and female, he created them, and he placed them in this garden to cultivate it and to keep it. But this garden, so pristine, so serene, so pure, was the site of an event which would alter the course of human history forever. Adam and Eve, our original parents, sinned in this garden, and they plunged the entirety of the human race into utter depravity, deserving of hell, bound and enslaved in the fall. Sin entered the world in this garden. The trees of Eden witnessed the cries of horror of Adam and Eve as they brought sin into the world. Now fast forward thousands of years to another garden. It is a garden in the east, outside of Jerusalem. It is filled with olive trees and green grass, a garden called Gethsemane. And this garden is unlike that first garden. This is not where sin entered the world, but where we find a savior who would defeat sin on his knees before God. The trees of Gethsemane witnessed the cries of agony of Jesus Christ as he was about to conquer the sin of the world. The medicine brought forth in Gethsemane was to cure the ills of the forbidden fruit of Eden. The scene is Thursday night. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. 
And after that first Lord's Supper, in the late hours of the night on Thursday night, into the wee hours of the morning of Good Friday, Jesus and his disciples go to Gethsemane. And here in this garden, we enter the final 12 hours of Jesus' life. This is the preview of the cross. This is the corridor which leads to Calvary. This is the antechamber of Golgotha. This is the veil behind the veil. This is the holy of holies of Jesus' life. For Gethsemane represents the divinely inspired commentary on what the cross meant to Jesus, on what it meant for the Holy One to take away the sin of the world. As we approach this passage, which in a very real sense brings us to the very threshold of the agony of Christ, I want to point out that in our passage there are eight historical present tense verbs, a highly and unusually concentrated amount. If you have an NESB Bible, these verbs are denoted by a star or an asterisk which appears next to the verb. The historical present tense verb is a literary device in which past history is written in the present tense. So while the events occurred in the past, they are written as if we are moment by moment witnesses of what is happening. So for instance, in the Greek, in the original, Despite all of this happening in the past, we do not read that Jesus came to his disciples, past tense. We read that Jesus comes to his disciples, present tense. We do not read that Jesus found them sleeping. We read that Jesus finds them sleeping. We do not read that Jesus said to Peter, we read that Jesus says to Peter. The preface to the NASB Bible of 1963 says, Greek authors frequently use the present tense for the sake of heightened vividness, thereby transporting their readers in imagination to the actual scene at the time of occurrence. The literary device is meant to transport us back into the very garden itself. To see the events transpiring before our eyes in real time, unfolding in our very presence. We hear his words as if with our own ears. We see his actions as if with our own eyes. We feel the crispness of the night air as if with our own skin. The Holy Spirit wants us to see Jesus as if we were present in the garden with him that fateful night. So this morning, I invite you into the Garden of Gethsemane. I invite us to see Jesus, to behold our Savior, to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. I invite you to see the Son in his sovereignty, 
the sacrifice in his sorrow, and the Savior in his submission. First, let us see the Son in his sovereignty. The Son in his sovereignty. At first glance, if you were to simply peruse the text, you might be led to think that Jesus, in his darkest hour, in the Garden of Gethsemane, has lost control. The situation seems to be spiraling out of control. Perhaps the stress of the moment has caused him to deviate from his plan. Perhaps the shadow of the cross has produced a moment of uninhibited panic. Perhaps Gethsemane is a detour on the road to redemption. But if we read the text carefully, we will find that such is not the case. Embedded in our passage are hints of the Son in his sovereignty. Gethsemane is not outside of Jesus' plan. Gethsemane is, in fact, well within Jesus' plan. The first clue of the Son in his sovereignty is in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. After the Passover meal, Jesus takes the eleven with him, and he brings them to this place, likely an enclosed and sheltered parcel of land surrounded by a low stone wall, a place which bears the name Gethsemane. The title Gethsemane means olive press. It was an olive grove where someone harvested olives and then crushed them into a paste to extract the pure olive oil in its finest form. This is Gethsemane, the place of crushing. And here, our Savior was crushed. Our Savior was pressed to bring forth the pure oil of grace for us. Now, the key to understanding this location, is to realize that this is not the first time that Jesus visited this particular grove of olive trees. In fact, Gethsemane was one of the Lord's favorite places of retreat when he was in Jerusalem. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39 tells us that it was his custom to go to Gethsemane. John 18, 1 through 2 says that Jesus often met there with his disciples. Gethsemane was very familiar to all of them. Jesus' feet trod a well-worn path to this garden. It was this spot where the Lord found a place of repose and relaxation from all the crowds and the hustle and bustle of ministry. All of them knew this place of retreat very, very well. All of them, including Judas Iscariot. When it came time for Judas to betray the Savior, he knew exactly where to find him. You see, brothers and sisters, if you were trying to hide from your betrayer, Gethsemane would be the last place that you would go. Jesus went there anyway. He wasn't trying to escape the cross. He was walking towards it. Jesus did not go to Gethsemane to flee. Jesus went to Gethsemane to be found. Calvin said, as the Savior came into the garden, Jesus did not seek retirement for the purpose of concealing himself, 
But as he had made an appointment with his enemies, he presented himself to death. In eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, he who is to become the God-man, the heaven-born Prince of Peace, the incarnate deity, the invisible made visible, the immortal made mortal, Jesus Christ in eternity past made an appointment with death. And on this night, the night before the cross, Jesus keeps that appointment. He goes to where he knows Judas will find him. He goes to Gethsemane. What should have been a place of refuge became a place of sorrow. What should have been a place of loyalty became a place of betrayal. What should have been the most sacred of places became the most profaned. There is another clue as to the sovereignty of the Son, and it comes at the end of our passage. Look with me at Matthew 26, 45. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The hour is at hand. The hour refers to his appointed time of suffering and death. The decisive hour of the cross. The time of the passion of the Christ. From the very beginning of his public ministry, when Jesus had turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, he said, my hour has not yet come. Over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, Jesus repeats the familiar refrain, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And yet each time he says that, the tick-tock of the cosmic clock winds down to this very moment when he finally says, the hour is at hand. The hour is upon us. The hour is now. Jesus is following to the very minute, to the very second, the divine timetable set forth from eternity past. Jesus is right on time. He is right on schedule, like clockwork. And Jesus says in verse 46, behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He can hear Judas approaching. He can hear the footsteps of the son of perdition drawing near. And there he waits in the garden, patiently waiting for his traitor's arrival. This is the appointed place, Gethsemane. This is the appointed time, the hour. This is the appointed betrayer, Judas, all orchestrated by Jesus Christ himself. This was known in the councils of eternity in the mind and heart of the triune God. This moment was decreed by the eternal Godhead before the dawn of time. The passage is bracketed, it is bookended by two evidences of Christ's divine sovereignty. These are the testimonies which surround this passage, the testimonies that tell us that the Son is sovereign in his suffering. Secondly, let us see the sacrifice in his sorrow. The sacrifice in his sorrow. And we continue in verses 36 to 38. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So Jesus and the disciples make their way to the Mount of Olives. And treading the hillside under the soft and faint light of the full Passover moon, they enter the grove through a subtle opening in low stone wall. And Jesus takes the 11 apostles with him into the garden. But he tells eight of them to wait just inside the gate of Gethsemane. And then he brings with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, deeper into the garden. He takes the chosen among the chosen. He takes the inner circle with him. These are Jesus' best friends, Jesus' closest companions. These are the men that he loves. These men were with him at the transfiguration. These were the men who were with him at the raising of Jairus' daughter. And he takes the three into the heart of the garden and he implores them to keep watch with me. Keep watch with me, Peter, James, and John. Pray with me, Peter, James, and John. Stay awake with me, Peter, James, and John. But in verses 40 to 41, Matthew tells us they slumbered. They fell asleep. They slept. They could not keep watch with him for even one hour. At a time when he needed his friends the most, they failed him. The point is clear. Jesus is alone in this. Jesus is completely alone in this endeavor. Jesus will carry this weight alone. Jesus will bear this burden alone. No man has known loneliness like this. In the history of the world, there has never been a moment of loneliness like this moment. Jesus met with eternally appointed death alone. This is a singular mission fit for a singular man. In verses 37 to 38, Jesus tells them why he so deeply desired their companionship. He began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. At this very moment, not before, but now, he began to be grieved and distressed. The Savior experiences an overwhelming assault, a terror and a torment attack his mind and soul. Jesus says, this grief is of such a violent kind that if it had its way, it would kill me. This grief is seeking to crush me to death. This grief is seeking to destroy me. The Savior experiences grief and distress. The two Greek words together speak of such a profound despondency that they are nearly untranslatable. The two Greek words together are meant to portray the shock of an unimaginable grief. It is the kind of grief that strikes a sudden, overwhelming blow to the very essence 
and fiber of your being. When I was a third year ICU resident, I took care of a woman 18 weeks pregnant who was so severely ill that for days she stood on the precipice of death. She required four continuous medications into her veins just to keep her blood pressure up to sustain life. For days, she clung to life by a thread. And her husband, a father of four small children, clung to hope by a thread along with her. One day, at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the illness became too much for her. We coded her over and over again. Hundreds of chest compressions, countless milligrams of medication, all to no avail. That afternoon, she slipped into eternity. And I walked out into the hallway to tell her husband the sad news. And as I was speaking to him, I could visibly see the shock overwhelm his faculties, the shock overcome his physical posture. His lips trembled, his legs buckled, and he began to collapse. His knees would have hit the cold, hard hospital floor if I had not caught him and bore him up. And there he wept grieved and distressed. This is the picture. Jesus began to be grieved and distressed. Verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. Jesus goes to be alone with his God. And as he walks a stone's throw away from them, he staggers. He staggers. His legs are no longer strong enough to hold him. He is trembling too much. He is visibly, physically shaking. His body is overcome with sorrow. His muscles go limp, and he collapses. He is here arrested in the grip of shuddering horror. And he prays. He lifts up his voice to God. He cries out to God. He beseeches God on his knees. Jesus was, of course, a man distinctly marked by the discipline of prayer. Jesus modeled for us the power of a robust prayer life. In crucial seasons of his ministry as the Lord's anointed one, Jesus engaged in intense sessions of prayer. And these sessions of prayer were often met by the blessing of God. It was at his baptism that Luke tells us, as he was praying, heaven was opened, the dove descended, and the voice from heaven rung out, you are my beloved son. Again in Luke 9, at the transfiguration, Jesus tells us, while, Luke tells us, while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus would often go to God in prayer, 
and he was always met with the smiling countenance of his heavenly Father. Surely on this night, at this hour, no less than heaven itself would open up and pronounce blessing upon the Son of Heaven. Surely at this hour, in this garden, no less than the Father himself would smile upon the Son once more. But not tonight. Not on this night. Not in Gethsemane. William Lane says, Jesus came to be with his Father in the garden for an interlude before his betrayal. But he found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. Why this grief? Why this distress? This is quite a change. Up until this very moment, Jesus had steel-faced resolve to go to the cross. Three times he predicted his death. Luke 9.51 even says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. He was resolved. He set his face like flint to go to the cross. Nothing would keep him from the cross. But here, he began to be grieved and distressed. Why? Because here, in this garden, Jesus is made aware, like never before, of the stark reality which lies before him. He is confronted with the reality of becoming the sacrifice for sin. He is struck by the reality of becoming the vicarious sin bearer that he who knew no sin will become sin for us. He sees a foretaste of what it means to experience hell on the cross and be forsaken of God. And he staggers. And he cries out in prayer, my father. He doesn't even just say father. He says, my father, to emphasize the intimacy. This is the only place in all the gospels where Jesus addresses God as my father. Mark says that Jesus cried out, Abba, literally, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. He's talking about the cup of the holy, righteous indignation of a holy, righteous God against wicked, rebellious sin. The Old Testament called this the cup of divine judgment. In Jeremiah 25, 15, God calls it the cup of the wine of wrath from my hand. Psalm 75, verse 8, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Hugh Martin, a servant of God from a generation gone by, says, Doubtless his sorrow arose from the vivid view and near approach of that cup which the Father was just giving him to drink, that curse of God from which he came to redeem his elect people, 
That sword of the Lord's wrath and vengeance which he had just predicted, the penal desertion on the cross, the withdrawal of all comfortable views and influences, and the present consciousness of the anger of God against him as the surety substitute, a person laden with iniquity. These were the elements mingled in the cup of trembling, which was now to be put into his hands, and the prospect caused him deadly sorrow. We cannot possibly comprehend what this means to him. With the moon glinting through the olive trees, Jesus is bent at the knees, bent double at the waist, prostrate, the creator of the universe, face down upon his creation. If I may borrow the phrase, brethren, behold, deity in the dust. Deity in the dust. All because of the cup. Jesus sees the cup. He smells the cup and everything in him recoils from it. Jesus falls to his knees and the Father presents him with the cup. Jesus falls on his face. The Father presses the cup to his lips. Oh, the cup. Oh, the cup of the awful wrath of God. Oh, the cup, the cup, the cup. That horrible, haunting, harrowing cup. Oh, the cup of God's wrath. And here he is. The sacrifice is in his sorrow. Oh, unbeliever. Oh, dear unconverted friend here this morning, can you possibly behold the Son of God face down in Gethsemane and say to yourself, oh, just can't wait for this church thing to be over with so I can get on with more important things in my life? Oh, dear unbeliever, if Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, the holy, righteous Son of God. If Jesus Christ, very God of very God, deity incarnate in human flesh, if Jesus Christ himself shrinks from the cup of God's wrath, what will you do if you, when you, in your unbelief, have to drink the cup of God's wrath yourself? Drop by drop by drop by drop by drop forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you treat lightly the wrath of God? Do you trample underfoot the Son of God? Oh, unbeliever, does the cup of God's wrath terrify you? Does it distress you? Does it horrify you? It should. If it terrified Jesus, it should terrify you. Oh, unbeliever, go to Gethsemane and see the Savior face down in the dust. Go to Gethsemane and learn to fear the wrath of God. Third, let us see the Savior in his submission. The Savior in his submission. Jesus seized the cup and asked the father in verse 39, Abba, Daddy, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
If there be any other way, then let the cup of your wrath pass from me. But he hears nothing but silence from heaven because there is no other way. If there was another way, no doubt God would have chosen it. But God from eternity past, God who knows all things, God who is all wise, who is all knowing, who is omniscient, weighed every possible scenario. He calculated all the possible permutations and combinations. He treated all the possible options to save sinners and bring maximum glory to himself. And there was no other way. This is the only way. This is the best way. The God-willed way. The God-decreed way. So Jesus submits, yet not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus goes back again a second time, verse 42. He went away again and prayed a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then a third time, verse 44, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Three times Jesus goes to pray to the Father, and three times he is told there is no other way. The cup cannot pass away unless Christ drinks it. And three times our Lord submits, your will be done. Now, the mysterious, haunting question that confronts us all here in the garden this morning is not what caused Jesus this grief. We already know that. It's the cup of God's wrath. The burning question is not what caused him this grief. The burning question is why? Why? Why did God ordain that Jesus would experience this withering agony now? Why did God give Jesus a foretaste of the wrath of God here in this garden? Why did Jesus get a foreshadowing of hell on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why here? Why now? I mean, why not wait till the cross? After all, the cross is where the Son bore the unleashed fury of the Father's wrath, so why not wait till then? Why here? Why now? Why in this garden? This has been called the great mystery of Gethsemane. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Christ's Agony, answers this very question for us. He says, in the garden, the father did, as it were, set the cup down before him for him to take it and drink it. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. When he had seen what they were and then undertaken to endure them afterwards, then he acted as knowing what he did. Then his taking that cup and bearing such dreadful sufferings was properly his own act by an explicit choice. So is his love to sinners infinitely the more wonderful and his obedience infinitely the more perfect. Do you hear what Edwards is saying? In Gethsemane, the father says to the son, 
See how devastating the furnace is. See the raging flames of my wrath. Smell the cup, see the cup, hold it in your hands. Do you love your people so much that you will drink it? Is your love for them so great that you will proceed with the cross? Either you die or they die. Either you drink the cup or they drink the cup. There is no other alternative. There is no other option. There is nothing in between. It's either you or them. Will you go on? Remember, this is the greatest moment of loneliness in human history. This is the greatest moment of loneliness in the history of the world. Jesus is alone with the Father. The disciples are sound asleep. The Roman soldiers have not yet arrived. Judas is not yet on the scene. Jesus is in the middle of the night, in the dark, on a deserted hillside, praying a solitary prayer. He is completely alone. And at this very moment, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is free to leave. He is free to walk away. He is free to flee. He is free to escape. Brothers and sisters, heaven and hell hang in the balance. Our eternal destiny hangs in the balance. Our everlasting salvation hangs in the balance. The first Adam failed in the garden. Will the second Adam obey in the garden? Will he choose to be the savior or not? The answer comes resoundingly, yes. And the answer comes in the words, your will be done. Lo, it is written of me in the scroll of the book, I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will. You see, when Jesus says, your will be done, he is not saying, your will be done to me. He's saying, your will be done by me. He's not saying, your will be done as if I'm some helpless victim. He's saying, your will be done by me as a willing, voluntary participant. He was not forced to do this. He chose to do this. This was not an act of compulsion. This was an act of volition. The cup would not be forced down his throat. He would willingly take it and drink it. The purpose of Gethsemane was to make certain that the cross was entirely Christ's choice. In the words of Edwards, this was properly his own act by an explicit choice. Here in the garden, our Savior chose to subject himself to the curse of the tree. He chose the nails. He embraced the pain. He, looked, he committed himself to become the object of the Father's wrath. This was a free will offering. This is Jesus Christ willingly, voluntarily laying down his life for the sheep. Your will be done by me. Brethren, in his obedience, is the Savior not also giving us a pattern for our obedience? Now, do not get me wrong. We must never say that we have a personal Gethsemane. No man has ever earned the right to say that they have a personal Gethsemane because no man has suffered like this. We do not have Gethsemanes in our lives. But we can learn something from the exemplary obedience of our Savior. We must learn that when it comes to the will of God, 
we must wholeheartedly submit to his will. Not begrudgingly, not resentfully, not helplessly, not bitterly, not, dare I say, hatefully submitting to his will. We all know what it is like to submit in a sulking and moping manner. We are like children who, when it is told it is their bedtime, that their shoulders slouch, their face drop, and they whiningly sigh, okay, okay, I'm coming. That would be, your will be done to me. Not that. This is, your will be done by me. Willingly, voluntarily, full of faith and trust. Christ also teaches us that when it comes to obedience to the will of God, we must have no conditions, no compromise. Your will be done, period. I have come to do your will, O God. Not your will be done except, not your will be done if, or your will be done as long as or unless. Too often in our Christian lives, we say our obedience is conditional. You say, I'll obey you if I'll trust you, God, as long as. I'll worship you, God, unless. What you really mean is, God, I'll obey you conditionally, on my conditions, on my terms, as long as you keep doing what I want you to do. Perhaps you're a businessman making a comfortable living. Your career is taking off. You're moving into the ranks of upper management. And then comes the day that your boss asks you to fudge the numbers, cover up the losses, fabricate the gains. You know you have to comply or else it may very well cost you your next promotion. What will you do? Will you submit to your boss? Or will you submit to your God? Do you have a condition in your relationship with God? Lord, I will obey you as long as my career progresses. Lord, I will submit to you if you give me a nice, comfortable living. If you're a parent, ask yourself, are your children your condition? What if your child suffers a devastating disease? What if your child runs away from home, rebels against you, and leaves your family in tatters? Will you say, Lord, I will trust you even if I don't understand. Or will you say, I can't worship a God who would let something like this happen? If it's the latter, you've got a condition in your relationship with God. What you're really saying is, Lord, I will trust you as long as you keep my children safe from harm. Lord, I will worship you as long as you protect my kids. You've got a condition. God, I'll obey you if. God, I'll follow you unless. God, I'll trust you as long as. Brothers and sisters, do you have a condition in your relationship with God? Brethren, be very, very careful about the if in your relationship with God. Because whatever is on the other side of your if is what you truly worship. If you have an if in your relationship with God, then you're not really truly worshiping God. 
You're using God to serve what you really worship. Your career, your security, your finances, your family, your house, your freedom, whatever it may be. Are you willing to trust God even if you don't understand? Are you willing to submit to him under any and every circumstance through many dangers, toils, and snares? Are you willing to submit and obey no matter what it might cost you? Sometimes doing the right thing may cause you painful consequences. Just ask Jesus. Let it not escape our notice that Jesus is here quoting word for word Matthew 6.10, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We all know this prayer. We've all prayed it. We all have said it. We've all repeated it. But how often do we mindlessly say the phrase, your will be done, without ever realizing the gravity of these words? How often might you, with your lips, say, Lord, your will be done by me? But what you really mean in your heart of hearts is, Lord, my will be done by you. Have we forgotten the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 24? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It ought to be obvious and clear to us, brothers and sisters, when you carry a cross, you don't carry anything else. When you carry a cross, you don't bring anything else with you. To carry a cross is to deny yourself. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, for the spirit of Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Do we get that, brothers and sisters? Though God kill me, I will still trust him. What do you think we mean when we sing, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee? Do we mean take this part of my life or that part of my life? No, we mean take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. We need to follow the pattern set by our Savior here in this garden. We need an unwavering, unrelenting, uncompromising commitment to submit ourselves in obedience to the will of God. Brothers and sisters, go to Gethsemane and learn what it means to submit to God. Jesus confirms his submission by ending the passage with settled, resolute conviction to the cross. Verse 46, Jesus says, get up, let us be going. Arise, let us complete the work that we have started. Let us finish the work that the Father has given me to do. And from that moment, when Jesus says, get up, let us be going, Jesus triumphed in prayer in Gethsemane. And from this point on, until he is buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, from the garden to the cross to the grave, no matter where Jesus is seen, he is always regarded in one state and one state alone. He is treated as a guilty, convicted criminal, a condemned felon. As you trace the gospel record from Gethsemane to Golgotha, no matter where you look, 
no matter whom Jesus appears before, if he stands before the Jews, if he stands before Pilate, if he stands before Herod, from this moment on, he always appears in the eyes of man as a guilt-laden criminal. God is enacting in the visible realm what has transpired in the invisible realm. Heaven is being acted out on earth. From this moment forward, Jesus is treated in the court of man as a criminal worthy of death. And in the court of heaven, he is treated in the exact same way. In the court of heaven, he is charged with the crimes of a great multitude whom no man can number out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. He is charged with the crimes of vile wretches, charged with the crimes of wicked sinners, charged with the crimes of depraved rebels, charged with the crimes of you and me. He is charged with our crimes. He's convicted of my sins. He's convicted of your sins. He's convicted of our sins. He's sentenced to our punishment. He's condemned to drink our cup. And drink it, he did. At the cross, Christ drank it dry. He drank and drank and drank and drank and drank until there was nothing left. Every last drop for you and for me in our place, in our stead. Oh, Christian, how bitter is the taste of God's wrath? How awful is the cup of the wrath of God? How horrible is hell? Oh, believer, you will never know because Christ drank it for you. Every last drop for you and for me. As Luther said, we all walk around with his nails in our pockets. In closing, Spurgeon invites us one final time to see the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. He writes, Looking at Jesus in the garden, I learn how black I am, how filthy, how loathsome in the sight of God. I feel myself only fit to be cast into the lowest hell, and I wonder that God has not long ago cast me there. But I go into Gethsemane, and I peer under those gnarled olive trees, and I see my Savior. Yes, I see him wallowing on the ground in anguish, and hear such groans come from him as have never come from a human breast before. I look upon the earth and see it red with his blood, while his face is smeared with gory sweat. And I say to him, My God, my Savior, what aileth thee? And I hear him reply, I am suffering for thy sin. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are speechless. We are dumbfounded. We are awestruck because of your great love with which you have loved us, because of the sacrifice that you bore on our behalf. 
Well, Lord Jesus, all we can say is, hallelujah, what a Savior. We pray in your name. Amen.